For some reason that we'll probably never fully understand, an extraordinary outpouring of energy began to occur around the year 1100. It was so powerful and so passionate that it transformed the way the world looked and thought about God, about justice and power, about women, love and art. This story starts with the almost unbelievable life of the woman we will come to know as Eleanor of Aquitaine. Eleanor had virtually everything this life can grant. Sunlit beauty, inherited power and wealth on a phenomenal scale. Kings as husbands, kings as sons. She lived an epic life in the middle of a whirlwind. Entangled with five mightily powerful men who fought for more than a century to control Western Europe. Surrounding them is an incredible array of people who lived in that world doing incredible things, from building stone cathedrals that streamed with sunlight, to fighting two crusades, to inventing fictional characters we still read about. We know of only a few of them, and what we do know of even these favoured few is limited by their records and our own comprehension. Come with us as we journey to meet Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry Plantagenet, Richard Lionheart, King John, and all the remarkable people surrounding them. To be in their presence is an exhilarating experience. Won't you join us? Welcome to Lion's Forge. My name is Beckett, and I want to tell you a story, an epic story of five kings and the Lion Queen. Episode 3 the Capets win the lottery. We find ourselves in the year 1137 and need to pause here to talk about two key aspects of the feudal world we're now in, liege lords and homage, concepts which will play very large roles in our story. Men who had come to own land, often thanks to notable success at wars, ancient and more recent, were linked by rights and obligations to others both above and beneath them in society. One higher on the ladder was your liege lord. It wouldn't be unusual to have several at the same time, some of whom could also be liege lords to others. Those lower on the ladder were the vassals of those above. Even great lords like Duke William of the Aquitaine could be vassals, in their case vassals of a king. A king, in turn, was God's vassal. Both liege and vassal personally pledged each other homage, a range of duties and services, the most important being sworn promises of physical defense and protection. How diligent you were about following through depended on how strong you believed you were and how weak you thought your lord might be. As society grew in size and complexity, Liege-vassal relationships proliferated. Even kings might find themselves vassals of other kings, sometimes following defeat in war, often because they had inherited subsidiary titles that carried feudal obligations to overlords. The entire subject was fraught with exceptions and modifications as wars were won or lost, marriages made and undone, heirs successful or too soon dead. Powerful heiresses, like Eleanor, were a problem because they made pledges of military support debatable. The problem was usually solved by marrying. And now we'll rejoin William X of Aquitaine, 
who's on a springtime pilgrimage from his own country to the shrine of St. James in northwest Spain, perhaps to atone for his sins, perhaps for a more worldly reason, like gaining power over one of his rivals. Regardless of his reasons for the trip, like others of his group, he would have had his staff and pouch, the signs of pilgrimage, and would be bare-legged as a symbol of humble penitence. Like his fellow travelers, he would spend each day walking, eating, talking, praying, sleeping. Food might be lamb cooked with fennel, sheep's milk cheese, olives, dried cherries. Diversion would come by way of shared stories, real and imagined, just as Chaucer's pilgrims whiled away their days. Perhaps he carried a copy of the well-regarded new guidebook, the Codex Calixtinus, filled with such practical advice as how to dodge high fees on toll roads. He had both his daughters, Eleanor and her younger sister Alex, with him for a time. Moving slowly with the caravan in early spring, through the awakening French countryside. Eleanor, about 13 at the time, and her 11-year-old sister, were then left in Bordeaux, midway through the journey, in the care of the local archbishop. Wealthy, marriageable heiresses of the day had a disconcerting way of disappearing from their households and then popping up married to, or sleeping with, someone entirely unexpected. The archbishop's house was like a bank vault. He'd certainly have no designs on the two girls, and even the most barbaric noble would not attack them there. Everyone anticipated being back in the pleasures and comforts of Poitiers by no later than the middle of May. On Good Friday, the ninth day of April in the year of our Lord 1137, William suddenly became first somewhat sick, then very sick, then mortally sick all in the matter of hours. Not old, not infirm, a warrior and a patron of the arts, a great lord, on his way with fellow pilgrims to see famous relics, one hour quite alive, the next on his deathbed. Some said he had eaten a meal of badly cooked eels, which certainly could have done it, since raw eel blood is toxic to humans. Perhaps William stumbled into botulum bacteria, frightening enough even now that we nervously toss out a dented can of green beans. Perhaps he had the bad luck to run into E. coli, a frequent stowaway on food kept a little too long and temperatures a little too warm. Even in our time, E. coli can be a killer. Dozens of people die from it in the United States every year, first with stomach cramps, then diarrhea, increasing dehydration weakening the immune system the mouth getting drier, the brain getting dizzier. His companions must have been aghast as they hovered near him, wiping his face, trying in vain to keep his linen clean, and eventually leaning in to hear his final wishes. Before he had gone on this trip, he had asked that his own liege lord, Louis the Sixth, king of the Franks, protect his oldest daughter and named heir, Lady Eleanor, set to become one of the richest and most powerful individuals in Europe if her father were to die. William told his men to go to Paris, commanding that no one was to know of his death before Louis. The duke was still lucid enough to realize that even the Archbishop of Bordeaux might not be proof against the scramble to whisk Eleanor off to an unwelcome wedding if this news leaked. 
William died that evening, his nights left in the somber darkness for Paris. Thank God, it must have been murmured. Thank God and thank the Virgin Mary that the girl was fully of marriageable age. All that was needed now was a husband. So now we come to our heroine, Eleanor of Aquitaine, so entangled in her own myth that one current historian sighed that it's futile to try to separate the facts of her life from the legends. It wasn't just Eleanor. The historical record of her time is generally covered over by the waters of a very murky sea. Much of what we have to go on was written by self-appointed chroniclers, who lived in an era before fair and balanced reporting was a journalistic goal. They often had axes to grind against women, against countries, against particular noble houses. Many chroniclers wrote years, decades, even centuries after the events in question. Time and memories are notoriously more fragile than that. Even those who wrote contemporaneously usually got the story from some observer who may not have seen, understood, or been entirely objective in their own recollections. Major events described by four different chroniclers can come in four different flavors. As for those major events, one English historian noted that medieval chroniclers made no effort to evaluate what they so dutifully recorded. The birth of a double-headed calf was given as much coverage as the fall of an empire. Well, we do know some facts about this woman who still possesses one of the few recognizable female names in history. In the space of her father's faltering heartbeat, Eleanor inherited property that would make any nobleman infinitely stronger and richer if he could only possess it. The right way to do it would be to marry her, but another option was always available. Outright conquest, worth every bit of the risk that went with it. One does wonder what her towering grandfather William the Ninth would have thought if he could have anticipated that Easter Sunday of 1137, his son, not yet forty, dead, victim of some eel sadly undercooked, if not a simple unwashed onion. His thirteen-year-old granddaughter was suddenly the rather dazed ward of the absolutely delighted King Louis VI of France. We need to note here that France, as we know it, didn't exist in the twelfth century. It was then called the Kingdom of the Franks just a fraction of the modern country, but we'll use France and the French as the terms most familiar to us. You need to forget whatever you might recall about the glories of Versailles. France in 1137 was centuries away from any hint of its eventual grandeur. If anything, the mighty Dukes of Aquitaine would have considered the King of France and his House of Capet a minor player in their world of dynastic politics. Some six generations before our story began, little Hugh Capet, ambitious as many men but wilier than most, had snuck onto the French throne while the truer heir, the Duke of Lorraine, was out of town. This Capet was fortune's darling. There's no other way to describe his success. Even if grudgingly, most of the great French nobles eventually consented to his occupying the throne, probably considering the French monarchy so powerless that whoever called himself king was of little matter to them. 
We think of kings, especially kings in the era of knights and castles, as immensely powerful, but monarchy has often been a matter of who has the biggest purse or army. The Capets didn't. Nor did genetics come to their aid. Since after Hugh died, a series of near imbeciles succeeded him. The next several generations managed to shrink the Capetian domain to a virtual nub. When Eleanor's father William X first inherited the great Aquitaine, the French king ruled next to nothing, just five towns centered on the Ile de France at the Seine, Paris and Orléans, Estampes, Melon, and Campagne. Once those names had been called, the king's herald could step back and take a rest. Meanwhile, the great lords, the dukes of Aquitaine and Normandy, and their peers, the counts of Anjou, Toulouse, and Champagne, ruled far larger and richer domains that butted up against the French king's lands in every direction. These gentlemen were bullheaded, avaricious, and possessed armies of their own. Even barons on lower rungs of the aristocracy ladder raised hell of their own in the nooks and crannies of the greater lord's domains. Many of the most obnoxious made their homes just outside Capetian territory. On Good Friday, 1137, the occupant of the paltry French throne was King Louis VI, nicknamed the Fat. Thanks to a losing battle with obesity as he aged, his nickname brings to mind the image of an apple dumpling bathed in cream and set upon a throne. However, Louis VI was no buffoon. His nickname in the original French, Le Gros, can also be interpreted as the big man, and in his younger days, Louis had been as muscular, war-toughened, and determined as Eleanor's own mighty grandfather. At the age of 17, newly a knight, Louis set out to forcibly curb the swaggering barons who surrounded the royal lands on the Ile de France, men who were so arrogant that when he was a child, he could barely leave the gates of Paris without their permission. He would spend much of his life fighting these impudent rivals, not always successfully. Fortunately, Louis had just the qualities his feeble little kingdom needed. Tireless, patient, fearless in battle and apparently incapable of discouragement, little by little, Louis began to restore luster to the French throne. His individual efforts often were meager at best, but over time they slowly improved the position of the French monarchy in the 1100s. Young Louis had been unlucky in his family life, where the Capets could hold their own in any medieval contest of marital misconduct. His father, King Philip I, summarily dumped his first wife, Louis's mother, for what must have been one of the most glorious beauties of the age, Bertrade de Montfort. Bertrade apparently was really something. The man to whom she was already married, the Count of Anjou, had divorced his first wife to get his hands on her. Since both Philip and Bertrade were legally married to someone else, they were threatened with excommunication when they insisted on marrying each other in the face of the church's violent opposition. Philip did make repeated stabs at renouncing this bewitching beauty for the good of his immortal soul, but they never held. The great French churchman and royal adviser, Abbot Suger, was the historian of the realm among other occupations. 
he was absolutely determined to put the Capetian dynasty in the best possible public light. Yet even he described Philip as so consumed by passion for Bertrade that he lost all interest in the affairs of state. So Philip's son Louis, still in his teens, took on the role of a co-king to his weakened father, shouldering the privations of almost constant war and the duties of state in a realm already weakened and diminished by a century of the feckless heirs of Hugh Capet. When Philip died, perhaps worn out by life with Bertrade, but still making it almost to the age of sixty, his hard-working son Louis took the crown, evading all of Bertrade's significant efforts to put her own son on the French throne. Louis was twenty-seven when he inherited his domain. He'd already spent a decade governing for his weak-willed father while fighting off half-outlaw rivals far older than himself. That decade taught him a lot. Louis would be a warrior leader, never the kind who sat on a nearby hillside while his knights straightened in their saddles and kicked their great war horses into a fight. But most nobles of his time fought. He impresses us now because he would also prove himself conscious of the then uncommon idea that a ruler should see that his people enjoyed order and justice. Few of his peers concern themselves overly much with those concepts. Most, in fact, would have found them laughable. It is a decided mark in his favor that the brilliant and humane Abbot Suger, Capetian advisor and biographer, became a devoted and admiring friend, recording that years later, as Louis lay dying on the cold stone floor of his room, his last words to his own son and heir were to do justice to every man. To Louis's own immense regret, he struggled with obesity and related problems that worsened as he aged. He dutifully swallowed inch-long medicinal tablets made of clay that contained a dozen herbs pounded together by his doctors in an effort to settle his notoriously bad bowels. They may have helped a little, but nothing cured his weight problem. For years before he died, he was too fat to mount the warhorse that once would have willingly taken him into the thick of any battle. Despite his heft, he married twice, successfully the second time at the age of 35. His second wife, Adelaide de Maurienne, was amazingly fertile. The evidently very happy couple had seven sons, along with a daughter, in an eye-opening nine years. The eldest boy, Louis' heir, was named Philip, after his grandfather. But as things turned out, there would be no Philip II in this century. While only a youngster of fifteen, cocky and rebellious Philip died after falling from his horse, some say the sorry consequence of a run-in with a feral pig in Paris. Well, personal tragedy it may have been, but ultimately of small importance. There were plenty of options in this family. Son number two, who'd been in training as a churchman, was simply shuffled into place. This second son had been named after his father, so he'd always been called simply Louis the Younger, or even just Louis Capet. And so we find the Capets, as William X of Aquitaine lay vomiting his life away on the road to Campostella. King Louis was himself a sick man smelling of dysentery. His son, Prince Louis Capet, trained in prayer as diligently as his father had been trained in monarchy, was seventeen. On Holy Saturday, entirely out of the blue, 
they became two of the luckiest men in Christendom. They had just been handed one of the greatest matrimonial prizes of the century. As the King of France, Louis VI was the liege lord to the Duke of Aquitaine. Although the House of Aquitaine had never found that relationship particularly compelling, in earlier times, what the pathetic King of France thought might be shrugged off by indifferent Aquitanian dukes, but Eleanor's father, William X of the Aquitaine, actually had a reason to talk to Louis VI of France. Louis, with his six living sons, was making something of the French crown. In turn, the House of Aquitaine under William X faced an unchartered dilemma. Never before had a female been named its heir. William had accordingly asked Louis to serve as his daughter's guardian in the event something might happen to him, and Louis had quite readily agreed. Both were well aware of what that involved, since Louis had the hereditary right of all kings to approve or reject the marital plans of his aristocratic vassals. And quite suddenly, at the joyous Easter season of 1137, both sides, to their surprise, confronted reality. Louis suddenly possessed the once-in-a-generation chance to join his family with the rich and powerful House of Aquitaine, giving the Capets every prospect of leapfrogging all competitors for dominance in France. As for the Aquitanians, not only would the Duke's family now be the benefactors who had brought genuine wealth and power to the crown, but if the tricky game of biological roulette ran in their favor, Eleanor's son, with his Aquitanian blood, would one day be the king of that grander, richer, stronger France. But there were risks along with these notable rewards. Even after the right groom reached the altar with the right bride, the couple had to live long enough to successfully mate, the mother had to live long enough to be delivered of a living son, and the baby boy had to live long enough to outlast every other rival for the crown. It was a magnificent game, with a final tally that could only be reckoned after the course of entire lifetimes. Duke William X of the Aquitaine died on April 9, 1137. Chroniclers report that as soon as word reached Paris, young Prince Louis was sent to fetch Duchess Eleanor still the guest of the Archbishop of Bordeaux. Chroniclers of the day adored flashy scenes and were forever making feverish rounding errors when estimating participants in various undertakings, whether weddings or wars. Accordingly, we are asked to believe that 500 knights rode with the prince. By the way, we know very well today that even 200 would have been an extraordinary number. This kind of hyper-imaginative description will be seen again and often in everything from crusades to weddings. We can believe that young Louis was accompanied by his father's chief advisor, Abbot Suget, the great nobleman, the Count of Champagne, and a royal cousin, the Count of Vermandois, all of whom will play significant roles in the lives of our young royals. Think of what it might have looked like that train of horses draped in burgundy, silver and purple, sky-blue Capetian banners unfurled, trotting past meadows awash in the golden light of a southern spring. And so, Louis VI quickly played the card that had floated like a petal into his lap, 
Eleanor of Aquitaine, his priceless ward, was very quickly married to Louis Capet, his son and heir. In the next episode, we'll see that marriage begin to play out in ways most unexpected. We've come to the end of our story for the time being. I am Beckett Arnold, narrating from the book Lion's Forge by Karen Markle Knapp, soon to be available at Amazon Books. Don't forget, if you like what you hear, please give us a thumbs up, save us as a favorite, and share us with your friends. Most importantly, please join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Lion's Forge, available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts.